back to the On Again, Off Again podcast that is 1A. 1A is my counseling podcast where we often address counseling issues here in the church and the kingdom at large. And as many of you know, I have a counseling intern. His name's Josh Adair. He is my intern in biblical counseling, and he's joining us for this episode. So welcome, Josh. Thanks so much, Josh. It's good to be here. So Adair had a question for me, and so I thought it would be good to bring him on, allow him to ask. His question all kind of revolves around the idea of change, and then answer him there because I think it would be good for the benefit of all of the listeners. So Josh, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah, so as I was thinking about with our church's reentry into worship recently and just the surprising effects that have become the nightly conversation, I think, between my wife, Samantha, and I about the ongoing and unexpected nature of the change and, and how our, our culture and, and society have changed so much recently, just in the last six months. I was thinking, you know, what does scripture actually say about change? How do we understand change? And and how do we begin to develop resilience in the midst of change? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of conversations I'm having right now are geared around the fact that we're very fatigued by the, the place that we're at. And so I'd be interested to know from you, Josh, just a general primer of what change is. How would you define change? Right. It's a great question. So change is one of those things a lot like trust, for example, where we all use the word and generally know what it means, but the more you try to put your finger on it, the more squirrely it can become to try and define change. At its most kind of basic level, uh, change is the act of making or becoming different. That's all it is, is going from one state to a different state. So you could change from happy to sad, or you could change clothes, or you could change responsibilities, or you could even make change, you know, with, with money. It's simply going from one state to a different state. Sure. Now, there are two different kinds of change, and I think mm -hmm. people often get tripped up. When they think of change, they just think of it generically, and they don't recognize that when you have two different types of change, each one brings with it inherent kind of pros and cons. So one kind of change is a voluntary change. Mm -hmm. It's the sort of change that you choose to undergo on your own. Let's say like quitting smoke or yeah. going on a diet or learning a new skill. That change, there's an entire process. I've, I've talked about it quite a bit here recently. I think on one of my 1A podcasts, the recent TGC podcast that I did, mm -hmm. where there is, humanly speaking, a sort of five-stage process when it comes to voluntary change. You get to the place where you decide you want to change. And so that's one side of it, and it requires its own kind of understanding and nuance. It comes with its own pros and cons, and each stage has kind of a biblical place to be and things to look out for. And I've actually written an article about this that is on Desiring God as to each of those stages of change and kind of hmm. what you should be praying for in each of those stages of change. So if people had more questions about that, I would refer them to those pieces, though I'm happy to answer more if people are interested. But I've spoken quite a bit about that. So I think what we're talking about now, though, is not necessarily voluntary change. We're talking about involuntary change. Sure change that is forced upon us that we didn't really ask for. Sure. Again, some examples of that might be the loss of a job, mm -hmm. the loss of a loved one, or I think in our particular instance here, really this health crisis where we have to change the way we interact with people, the way we do things like go shopping and go out to eat or not go out to eat and get discipleship and have friendships and worship. 
and all the things that had its own rhythm and routine instead get changed into an entirely different expression that we neither wanted nor expected. Mm. And that brings with it a lot of turbulence. So instead of having those five stages where you're kind of running up to and then you decide to and then you're trying to hold it, all of a sudden your world's kind of rocked. And depending on how that how much that change affects you, it might rock your world a lot and it might rock your world a little. And then depending on your disposition, some people very much like consistency and consistency feels safe where other people are a little more fluid and therefore change, involuntary change doesn't seem to rock them quite as intensely. That's neither a good or bad thing. Each personality disposition has its pros and cons. Sure. It's just those who like consistency have a tendency to allow involuntary change to really upset them more than other people. Mm, That's super helpful because I think it definitely outlines some of the distinctions between, like you said, the voluntary or the involuntary aspects of it. And I think a lot of people might be reeling from the involuntary aspects of it. Especially because, you know, I remember a friend recently pointed me to the conversation on a, a blogger, Andy Crouch is his name, at, he wrote at the beginning of the whole pandemic crisis that a lot of people were sort of treating this as like a blizzard when really it seems like the beginning of a winter. But I think that further shows how we approach change very differently. And Right. And when you have something that's longer lasting, so we all tend to be able to get through anything for like a couple of weeks, you know, you can mm-hmm. do any activity pretty much for a couple of weeks. But once you start to move into the three to six weeks range, it really begins to hit you, which is why I think it's important that those people up front were saying, hey, y'all, instead of treating this like it's a blizzard, it's more like a a season, you know? Yeah, that's really helpful. I don't think you want to hear that in the beginning of it, though, because you're just so used to the new normal, or I guess it's not even normal at that point, but just the changes. Um, It is helpful and important, like you said, to recognize that there are longer lasting changes like that. Isn't that the sort of the process of counseling, by the way, is you're constantly telling people stuff they don't (laughs) want to hear? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's good. <laughs> that is what counseling is, is being honest in a loving way, hopefully. Right. So there's nothing yeah. inherently offensive about saying this isn't a blizzard. It's a season, though it is difficult to hear, you know, and yeah, so that's what counseling sure. is, is, being able to give difficult truths and hopefully doing it in very loving ways. Yeah, for sure. That's that's a good point of distinction as well. So, well, that brings me to a second question, too. When you consider change through those two lenses of involuntary and voluntary, we're also very nuanced people. You know, when you think about who we are from a scriptural lens, how does who scriptures say we are interact with how we understand change? Yeah. So the way that I would see that the Bible talks about the integrated human person is through three separate facets. Again, one of my favorite analogies is the facet of a diamond, where you can look through any particular facet and see something that the other two facets hid. You couldn't see it through either one, but all of them show the one reality, which is this integrated gem. Hmm. And so those three facets are feeling, thinking, and doing. All three of those pieces are always at work in all of God's people. Hmm. So let's talk about how change affects all three of those pieces. Sure. Whenever we begin to change, or when change is kind of foisted upon us, our thinking immediately can turn into a very negative style of thinking. 
This is not what I wanted. I'm not equipped to handle this. Begin to forecast all the terrible things that might come about. And all of us are struggling with this pretty much every moment of the day currently. It goes through seasons, I think, but I remember probably somewhere around the first three weeks, what I heard other people struggling with and what I was struggling with myself was the idea that death was in the air. Hmm. It was everywhere, and everyone was imagining themselves or someone incredibly close to them, a spouse, a child, a parent, dying alone in a room by themselves gasping for air. And that thought was terrifying. And they would ruminate on that thought over and Mm. over and over again. And so whenever changes put upon us that we didn't ask for, it's easy for our minds to begin to, by themselves, go down very difficult and distress-maintaining. That's kind of the secular idea for it, is distress-maintaining thought paradigm that keeps you amped up. So physically, it keeps you amped up, and it's really hard to disengage. There are neurotransmitters that start firing in your brain and all that good stuff now. Mm. You know, regardless of whatever your neurochemistry is doing, you're still responsible. Scripture never says because you have certain neurotransmitters, it's okay. Mm. You don't have to take your thoughts captive. No, you know, Philippians is clear. You're to think on what's good, lovely, and true, to meditate on those things. And so for our thinking, we really do have to make sure that we don't let our thinking get away from us at times of change, that we don't create Mm. these sort of persistent negative views, ideations, forecasts for ourselves and for our loved ones. Sure. So from a thinking being perspective, that's where we want to go. Now, how thoughts, feelings, and actions interact Mm-hmm. is a very muddled thing. There are multiple kind of theories as to which has primacy, if it's emotions that have primacy over affections or, or over thoughts, rather, or thoughts have primacy over affections or, or even volition doing something. And the truth is, is that no one has it down pat. All three mm-hmm. interact in ways and at different times bring different pieces to the formula. That being said, the Puritans, again, what they had a tendency to do, and this is what... Uh, Owen does in his Mortification of Sin, he talks about the mind, the thoughts, as being like the watchman in the watchtower. Hmm. He's the one who's able to yell danger and say, something's coming, we need to bring up the guards, and we need to keep something safe. And it's when the mind goes, and we get lazy in the mind, and we allow ourselves to percolate and ruminate on things that are not good, lovely, and righteous, that then our heart is really allowed to fester with sin, which usually leads to some sort of action or activity that is unrighteous. Hmm. And so... Even though the formula is complicated, thought is usually the place from which we want to at least start. What are the thoughts that are going around? So you want to challenge the thoughts as you encounter change. Now, affectionally, what we tend to do when we encounter change is we tend to have anxiety. That's the primary emotional response to change. Now, some people, some people actually like change and it excites them, mm-hmm. but that tends to be a more minority of people. And I don't know anyone who's excited by the change that COVID has brought around. Mm. For about a month, all of my introverts were excited, you know, because... <laughs> 
they got to be locked up in their room for a while and they're like oh this is heaven um i saw a meme at one point that said the nerds of the world woke up and uh sports were canceled they didn't have to see anyone and they could play video games all day long. <laughs> right right so there might have been some people who were really excited by covid at first but that has long since sure. worn off so i think anxiety is the first emotion people feel now anxiety is an interesting emotion and I'm always tentative about saying things as it relates to neurobiology because I'm not a neurobiologist or brain surgeon. And we have as one of our elders, literally the guy who wrote the textbook on brain surgery. <laughs> yeah. Right. Dr. Jim oh, Augustine. Gosh. And so when you've got that yeah. guy, you're always going to be a little tentative. And I think anytime I make some sort of neurobiology claim, I see him rolling his eyes because the brain is so much more complex than I think the simplistic forms psychologists and therapists give it. However, that being true, in general, what I've been taught is that anxiety is the only emotive state that comes from the left amygdala in your brain. All every emotive states come from the right. Hmm. And so, in a sense, anxiety is the anti-emotion. It's what you feel in order that you might not feel anything else because it's going to be too scary, too hurtful, too whatever. And so instead, you busy yourself with anxiety. Scripture, again, is clear here as well about not being anxious. Now, that doesn't mean never, ever, ever feel anxiety. Anxiety as a whole is just a neutral thing. But if you are going to feel anxiety, the only righteous way to feel anxiety is to be anxious about the kingdom and kingdom work, not necessarily about yourself. So anxiety tends to be the first thing whenever we run into change, and it's kind of almost like it's the it's the emotion of denial. It's the emotion that tries to keep you away from the reality and the depression and anger. Anger is usually the second emotion people run into in change, and that's because anger itself is driven by usually one of three emotions or a combination thereof, and that's hurt, fear, or sadness. And those three are just much more vulnerable and difficult to get to, so anger is more socially acceptable. Hmm. It's an energetic emotion, so it gives you energy versus hurt, fear, and sadness, which takes energy away. And then once you've pushed through the anxiety and the anger, usually you're at that place of depression where you're just sad that this change has happened and hmm. it still doesn't feel very fair, but you recognize it is what it is. And it can almost begin to get defeatist. Hmm. And I think that that is to a certain extent where a lot of people are currently. People who don't generally struggle with depression are really struggling with depression right now. And I've had a ton of depressive cases. My counseling load through this season, the first month it really died down, but gosh, over the past two, three months, it's just been exploding. Um, and a sure. lot of people, I think, are following that same track where at first they were anxious and then they were angry and now they're depressed. And, and plus that kind of makes sense, too, as you experience change, you realize the lasting nature of it, that you naturally go through those progressions. And is, is that to say that depression is always the end point of it? No, certainly not. And you don't have to end up depressed. I think it is uh, sadness, at least, is a part of coming to grips with an unwanted involuntary change. Right. Sure. So there can be unwanted change that's good. You could get a surprise promotion or whatever. But when it comes to unwanted involuntary change, especially if it's negative, the sadness that goes with it, I think, is inevitable. Now, you don't have to get lost in the eddy that is depression. Sure. But I think sadness is an understandable 
response to that. And keep in mind that our Lord and Savior was sad. Mm. He had no problems weeping and being sad when he saw things, and he was surprised. I know a lot of people, in their mind, they think Jesus knew in his human nature all things at all times. He did not in his divine nature. He did. But he was surprised, and he was negatively surprised sometimes. And in that negative surprise, sometimes he wept. He was sad in his Mm. negative surprise, change that he didn't want nor expected. That's super helpful. And so there's the thinking, and you can definitely see the biblical priority of what you said of thinking in your thoughts, and that's sort of the watchman, as as Owen would say. And then you see in a passage like Romans 12, where Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, or you see that in other places of scripture, then there's the emotional. And then how does change interact with your doing? The volitional? Yeah. Yeah. So it's usually a fruit of the other two. So if you're at a place where you are thinking negatively and you are feeling therefore anxious, angry, or depressed, usually how you're going to act is driven by that. You're going to be short and snippy with your kids and your spouse. You're not going to be able to concentrate and do the quality of work that you would like or that your superiors would like. It's probably going to affect your sleep. It's going to affect your eating, either overeating or undereating. Sure. So just decisions that you make and how you treat one another all are fruit of the fact that cognitively and affectively you're in this place where you've been affected because of negative change. Mm. And I think, too, would you say it's characteristic that you may not sometimes pick up on the level or magnitude of an involuntary change until you notice it in your doing? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oftentimes I think we're blind to how much of an impact it's having on us until someone we love really tells us. And of course, they're also struggling. It'd be one thing if it were just me struggling. Something that I loved was taken away from me, but that's not true. In this season, it's everyone who's affected. So all of a sudden, I'm acting negative, and my spouse tells me I'm acting negative, but maybe she's got a shorter fuse because of her negative experiences, and so it's just this terrible interaction back and forth, right? Sure. So I think that a lot of times we are unaware of the gravity of some sort of negative change until we see it in our actions, and usually seeing it in our actions means it being pointed out to us by someone we care about. Hmm. That is very helpful to understand and to to see that. That brings me to, I guess, one last point of question. You know, I've heard you talk a lot about resilience and cultivating resilience through a biblical lens. How might you think the scriptures speak to the idea of developing resilience in the midst of something like our current involuntary changes that we're seeing? Yeah, so, you know, Paul speaks very directly to this when he talks about in need and want or if he has everything that he needs. He's the same, right? And so mm-hmm. his situation doesn't actually change his level of contentment, his level of godly desire and rest on the Lord. Now, certainly there are moments for Paul where he does struggle more or less than others, but in the large scheme of things, It is not one's personal context that dictates one's resiliency, one's satisfaction, Mm. one's happiness, one's joy, one's peacefulness. Mm. All of that is really dictated by our identity, who we are in Christ. Mm. 
And so that would be the thing that I would tell people. There's the place that I would have you meditate in Scripture, is that who are you in Christ and what are Christ's plans for you? And who is Christ himself? Well, Christ is God. God is sovereign and in control. He brings about everything he knew beginning from end. COVID is not a surprise to him. You know, he didn't... He didn't go, oh, those Chinese and those bats and, you know, had no idea that some wet market was going to produce this. Instead, he's the one who created that nation, created that creature, that ultimately it would create this virus, that it would go global, mm. and that it would give us an opportunity to glorify him. How exactly and where exactly and all of that, I don't know. I'm not omnipotent, but he is. And so meditating on that level of control that he has his mm. sovereignty, but also his goodness, that he gives good things and that he loves us and that he was willing to suffer and die in order that we might be his. And so even in this moment where we are suffering, and if that's you know mentally, like cognitively, if it's affectively, or if it's volitionally, we have a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer and suffer more manifold than we ever will, mm. and who can speak into that suffering because he's been there. He's been tried and tempted in all ways as you and I have, and so he can speak directly into this moment. And so we can therefore set our minds on the things of Christ, and by setting our mind on the things of Christ, we find ourselves more and more able to make it through difficult things to be able to face uncertain circumstances. Who who knows? We have been so lucky that we have had very few positive cases, but with this recent surge and uptick, who knows? Who knows what we're going to face? And yet I do know that God is in control, that Jesus Christ loves me, that he was willing to die for me, that he's risen again, sits at the right hand of God, and I will be there with him someday. Mm. And that all that happens here is happening ultimately for one end, and that's for my good and the good of those who love Jesus. In that it really does give me a sense of hope and resiliency. Yeah, and I think that's even a really good outline of how this begins to trace its patterns out as we understand who we are through our biblical identity. You know, you start with the the truth of our Savior who is with us in the midst of our adversity, who knows what our adversity is like. It moves out to our affections and changes our doing. Like we're no longer paralyzed by fear or anxiety, or we're no longer in need of having to have our anger be the energizing factor, uh, but we're 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 found in him and the joy in him that results from knowing him can can result in in worship and joy in a season where unwanted change has been sort of foisted upon us as you say amen well any other last questions or thoughts there josh this is really helpful. I was thinking about this the other day, even in the nature of our Savior being with us, conceptualizing God as our Father. I was reflecting on the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 28 says, what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. So Amen. it seems like that's just the only real hope we have in the midst of our change, which we know, but we have to continually remind ourselves of. That's right. And you know, those confessions of catechisms, great source of uh, pastoral wisdom, the, the Heidelberg, probably the most pastoral of all of them. So maybe the one to really lean on in a season like this. But all of them were born out of times where there was a lot of significant 
change. Mm. And that change was terrifying at times because it meant mortal danger for you and for your loved ones. It's only been in a season like we've really had over the past generation or so where we've had a lot of stability where change Mm. like this takes us so off guard. And I'm hoping that on the other side of this, what you get is a generation of people who are resilient, who know how to love the Lord even in fearful times and can pass that on to the generation after them. Amen, brother. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I appreciate you being willing to chat for a few about that and even having me on. Well, thanks for being with me, Adair, and thanks to all the listeners. Uh, Hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again sometime. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me or Adair an email. You can get to me at jsquires at firstprezcolumbia.org or to Adair at jadair at firstprezcolumbia.org. We'd be happy to uh, answer any questions you have for us. Until next time, God bless.